it's rare that I preach two weeks in a row, and I think this is probably the first time I've ever preached two weeks in a row. Um, Brian and Joshua, his oldest, are um, on a trip visiting some colleges and doing football camps and things like that, and so um, they got a call early in the week last week from the University of Memphis and asked to see Joshua personally. And so um, that was yesterday, and so they couldn't turn that down. Um, The quarterback's coach wanted to meet with him, and their head coach wanted to meet with him. And so um, they went yesterday to the University of Memphis. They were on their way back from Eastern Kentucky and um, a few other schools that they visited. And so Brian called me Monday morning and said, would you mind preaching again next week? Um, he was like, I don't like doing that to you, but this is an opportunity we don't really um, want to pass up. And so I totally understand, and I'm thrilled to be able to bring the Word of God again this week. And so if you were here last week, we started a new series, uh, one that I'll be doing um, entitled The King is Coming and looking at living every day for the last day. Um, there, there's a lot of talk about the end times and oh you see signs of the times everywhere and people have their flow charts and and all their stuff talking about what things must take place before Christ comes and and we get um, wrapped up in the culture of the end times right we've got book series and movies coming out and remakes of movies coming out with Nicolas Cage because he has nothing better to do Um, and so um, has anybody ever seen a great Nicolas Cage movie? I'm just saying. Um, and so so he just had nothing better to do. So we're going to remake Left Behind um, again. And um, they're probably getting tired of being left behind. Uh, so so we, we've got all this cultural phenomena that surrounds the end times and, and all these things. But really, what does it mean for us today? What does it mean to live every day for the last day? Why does so much of the Bible point to the end and talk about the end? Why do we need to know the timing of events? Why are people so wrapped up in creating these charts and finding out when Christ is going to return? Um, what, what is the fascination and why is it so important? The scripture seems to, to say that it's important that we know Christ is coming. Now the scripture does not say it's important that we know when. Exactly when, or the scripture would have made it very clear and very plain. But as many of you probably know, if you grew up in church or you've spent any time around the Christian culture, it is not very clear as to when Christ will return. And it's not very clear as to what events must take place before Christ returns. Yet the Bible spends a lot of time talking about Christ's returning. And so what does that mean for us? And so we're going to look, as we go through this series, we're going to look at uh, the scripture. We're going to examine the scripture and see what it has to say about the return of Christ. Later we'll even get into some of the timing of events and and those things. What must take place before Christ returns. Um, But right now we're going to spend some time looking at what that means for different aspects of our lives. So this morning the title of our sermon is The King is Coming, So Endure Affliction. The King is Coming, So Endure Affliction. 1 Thessalonians 1 is where we'll begin this morning. We'll read down through verse 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, begins his letter by confirming their faith. He begins by confirming their faith based on what he's heard about them since he's been there, based on what he has seen from them as they received the word of the Lord. And one of the key aspects of what he is going to talk about here, and then he he begins to expound upon through the rest of this letter, is the fact that they were afflicted, or that they were persecuted. And so Paul spends a lot of time throughout two letters to the church at Thessalonica, talking about their affliction and talking about it in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return. And he means for this to be an encouragement to them. But right here in this passage that we're in this morning, in these ten verses, I want to look at some things that affliction does. That affliction does. Um, First of all, when we're talking about affliction and suffering and persecution and trials, we know that the Bible talks often about those things. Um, that, that we as believers in Christ are going to suffer. That we will endure trials. James 1 says we should count it all joy when we endure trials. When we go through trials. Um, but what Paul is more talking about in, in this book is actually affliction that comes from other people. This is not simply um, the effects of sin, suffering that happened because we live in a sin-cursed world. It's, it's not talking about the fact that we have cancer um, so much or that we get colds um, and, and, and all these kind of things that come about us or, or even consequences of our sin. That's never what the Bible's talking about when it talks about affliction or trials or, or things. Those are consequences of our own sin. If, um, if we've done things um, against the word of God that have caused uh, bad things in our lives, that's not necessarily our, our affliction um, because we're Christians or our persecution. What Paul's talking about here, though, in this affliction is being persecuted for the faith. He, he mentions that the word of God came to them even in affliction. Um, but three things this morning that affliction does is, is where we want to land this morning. And number one is affliction, Paul says, proves the faith. It proves the faith. In verse 2 he said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. 
And then if you jump down to verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for... You receive the word in much affliction. So Paul says, all of these things, he said, I've seen the work of faith. I know that you are chosen by God because the word came to you in power and Holy Spirit in affliction. In affliction. Affliction proves faith. If you flip to 1 Thess 2, um, verse 13. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as men, or not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul says in one... In one chapter, in chapter 1, he talks about the fact that they have been afflicted and they are imitators of Paul and of Silvanus and of Timothy. And then in chapter 2, he says, you are imitators of the churches who have also been persecuted by the Jews around them. And affliction has proven their faith. See, people don't naturally do hard things or give up their lives. Paul recognizes this. Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation of the serpent in the garden. They gave in to temptation of the serpent when there was one rule they had to follow. One. They had all the trees in the garden that they could eat of. And God said, but of this one, don't eat it. And the day that you eat, you will surely die. It was one command. But that seemed too hard for Adam and Eve, and they fell to temptation. We don't naturally do hard things. As a child growing up, I remember um, how excited I was to learn to mow the yard. Any guys in here ever been in that place? Like, saw dad mowing the yard, you wanted to mow the yard, that looks so cool, Right? And, and then I remember dad put me behind the mower when I was about seven years old. Um, got behind the mower. Man, it was fun. This thing has power. Um, and pushed it and got about half the yard done and was sweating and tired. And then I was like, you know, TV's also great. Um, there's air conditioning in there. It's not so hot, right? And and very quickly, mowing was no longer a fun thing. It was a hard thing. It was a chore. It was something I had to do, not something I desired to do. Children don't enjoy doing chores. I think that's why we call them chores, right? They're, they're things we have to do or we are made to do because it's work. And it's not fun for us. We don't... We don't like doing hard things and we don't naturally tend toward doing hard things. We naturally tend toward taking the easy way out or taking the easy road. We also naturally don't give up our lives. I've never um, known of anyone to go skydiving without a parachute. 
right? Like thinking that's going to be fun. Um, we, we seek to save our lives. We are all about protection. If you're on Facebook, um, bless you. Uh, but if, if, you're, if you're on Facebook and scrolling through your news feed, you'll probably see all kinds of articles warning moms about like everything that their kid can die from today, right? Um, and, and let me just say to you, mothers, stop reading it. Um, like over and over, I read these things. And I'm like, it's so hard to be a mom in the 21st century. Everybody's telling you like the 20 things your kid could die from before they leave your house this morning. Um, and, and so, but we do that. Why? Because we want to save life. We naturally want to protect life. And that's a good thing. We naturally want to keep life. We don't look for ways to die. Right? And if you do look for ways to die, you probably have ended up in a mental institution somewhere. Right? We, we don't naturally tend toward, um, toward death. We try to save life. But Paul recognizes that as people called to the gospel, that these people at the church in Thessalonica were willing to give up their lives. They were being persecuted by those around them. The spread of the gospel was causing death to come upon many who followed what they called the way, or the Christians of that time. If you've ever uh, seen the movie uh, At the End of the Spear or read the book Beyond the Gates of Splendor, then you know the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and many others who went with these courageous missionaries into the jungles of Ecuador and died at the hands of tribal leaders who these men just went to share the gospel with. And they thought they were a threat to them and so they killed them soon after they landed on the beach in Ecuador, but their willingness to lay down their lives was proof of their faith in God. Nobody looks at the life of Nate Saint or the life of Jim Elliot and thinks, well, yeah, I mean, everybody would do that, right? Anybody's willing to, like, go die for the spread of the gospel. No, that is not something that the Holy Spirit empowers people to do. Jim Elliot, in one of his most famous quotes, said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, he was willing to lose this life because he knew that he could not lose eternal life in Christ. And he gave up this life for eternal life in Christ and that others might know Him. But that's not natural. That's not what we naturally tend to do. When we see people like Nate Saint and Jim Elliott giving their lives, when we see other brothers and sisters today going to places around the world where they may die for faith in Jesus Christ, when we see our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Syria who are being persecuted to death, for their faith in Jesus Christ, we look to them and say, blessed are those. Blessed are the persecuted. They will inherit eternal life. We, we recognize that that proves their faith. If you've got nothing to lose, there's no way for me to know if your faith is genuine. 
Paul writes in this letter that they sent Timothy to the Thessalonians to make sure they were not being drawn away from the faith because of affliction. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that you were destined for this. For you yourselves know that you were destined for this. Paul saw the affliction coming on them. He was concerned that some might begin to stray from the faith because of this affliction and this persecution. So they sent Timothy to them to exhort and to encourage them. And then Paul says, you were destined for this. You know that you were destined for this. We have Christians today or so-called Christians sitting in pews all across this country that don't understand that they are destined for this. That we are destined for affliction. That we are destined for persecution. To identify yourself with Jesus Christ is to identify yourself with one who is killed. Right now in America, gay marriage is proving to be the area where true faith is being tested. Right now, that that is the one area that is exposing people's view of the Word of God, exposing where their authority lies to what they submit. And it is proving to weed out people who are not believers. Just this last week, uh, Tony Campolo, a man who's been, um, had quite large name recognition in the evangelical world um, said that the church should approve gay marriage and that we should all move in that direction denying 2,000 years of Christian history and billions of Christians around the world who hold that the word of God has said that gay marriage is sin that homosexual relationships are sin and that any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage is sin This is proving to be an issue that will divide us. While Christians aren't being killed for their beliefs on the gay marriage issue here in America, um, those who hold to this biblical view are being marginalized, they're being sued, they're being stripped of their belongings and of their businesses. Um, There are brothers and sisters in Christ in states all across this country who are being sued by their own state governments who are being dragged into court, being stripped of their businesses, um, and placed fines upon them of hundreds of thousands of dollars for discrimination because they wouldn't take part in a gay wedding as a baker or a florist or a photographer. And as we look at that, we see these people who are willing to endure affliction and persecution as it exists right now in America... And it proves their faith in Jesus Christ. It proves their faith. Affliction proves our faith. Affliction also produces stronger love. It produces a stronger love. Verse 3 in chapter 1. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love. When we endure affliction with other people, it creates a stronger bond of love between us. 
Marriages are often made stronger in trials. When a husband loses his job or a wife gets cancer or a couple loses a child to a miscarriage or whatever it may be, these things produce a stronger bond and a stronger love for one another. We cling closer to people when we go through affliction and persecution and trials together. If you've ever met a guy who has been in the military or you were in the military, you can testify to the fact that these men and women become brothers and sisters When they go through hard times together, they are drawn closer to one another. In battle, men will not leave one another behind. Because there is such a strong love and a strong bond that is created through affliction. And so too, when there is persecution of the church, the church loves better. We love stronger. We cling more tightly to our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We become unified. Because persecution weeds out those who are not truly believers. It weeds out those who say they're Christians because of some kind of social standing that it might give them. It's no longer popular to be Christian. It's no longer popular to hold to the authority of God's word. And as we see that become more the case in the United States, we will see more and impo- more people leaving the church. There was recently an article called "Is Evangelicalism Dying in America?" or "Is it Dead?" Because so many people, it seems, are leaving the church. But in a response to that article, Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention wrote an article saying absolutely not. Evangelicalism is not dying. In fact, it's stronger than it's ever been because people who are not truly believers are actually leaving and getting out of the way. And so now we have true brothers and sisters in Christ clinging more tightly to one another, clinging more tightly to the Word of God and being bold in their faith, and going where we haven't gone before, to countries all around the world, where the Word of God is not preached. But the question is, in all of this affliction, affliction proves faith, it produces a stronger love for one another. The question is, how do we stay faithful in affliction? How do we love deeper through trials? How do we do that? Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, okay, so we're called to affliction. But in the midst of affliction, it seems very hard to stay faithful. Well, first of all, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, you've never placed your faith in Him, that's the first step because apart from the Holy Spirit, you will not endure affliction. You will flee. But with the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you will endure. You will remain faithful. And it's because of this we know the hope of the future. We don't live for the things of this world. As Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We don't live for this life. The preacher in Ecclesiastes said, this life is but a vapor It's here for just a moment and then it's gone. 
We don't live for popularity in this life or possessions in this life. We live for a coming kingdom. See, affliction points to hope. Affliction points to hope. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says, You're enduring affliction now. You have turned from idols. Now you live to the true God. Now because you are waiting for His Son from heaven. And He will deliver us from wrath to come. You can endure this slight affliction because you will be delivered from the wrath coming. That is the wrath of God to punish sin for eternity in hell. Paul reminds the Thessalonians over and over in this letter, Jesus is coming. He encourages them with this truth in their affliction. Why does he keep reminding them of Christ's return? He tells us in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul understands that the glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ in his return is so much greater than anything we can endure here. Any kind of affliction that we can endure here. Any kind of suffering that might happen or occur here. His glory is so much greater. And so Paul is continually pointing these people to the hope of Christ's return. See, affliction is unnatural. It points to a future where there is no affliction. Eden was a place of peace and tranquility. The human heart longs for peace. We see that every day in the talk, on the news, and everywhere else in life. People just want peace. They're all searching for that one thing that will give them peace and comfort. But the afflictions of this life are here now to point to a time when there will be peace, there will be tranquility, but it will only come about when King Jesus sits on the throne and reigns and rules over this earth. It points us to our hope. Affliction reminds us of Christ's affliction and His victory over death. Isaiah 53 gives us the account of Christ's crucifixion. And it says that he was silent before his accusers. As they accused him of things that he didn't do, Jesus never spoke up. He never said, you can't do this. This isn't just for you to kill me. He suffered in silence. He was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. And we too can be just like Christ, and we can take affliction because, just as Christ knew that the resurrection was coming, we know that the resurrection is coming. Christ could look forward to three days after his crucifixion when he would be raised and he would conquer sin, hell, and the grave. And we too 
as those who have been united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection can look forward in our affliction and in our persecution and know that there is a second resurrection when Christ will return and we will be raised once and for all to have victory over sin and death. It gives us hope for a day when we will be delivered from this world and the wrath to come upon those who have persecuted us. As you read through the book of Revelation, there's a scene that keeps coming back. And it's the scene of all the saints from all time who have been killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they constantly cry out, When will you avenge our blood? They know that justice is coming for their persecutors. They know justice is coming for those who have afflicted the church. And Paul is saying, in affliction now, look forward to the day when Christ will avenge justice on those who have afflicted you. All pain, disease, and death will finally and fully be conquered by our King. We can endure affliction now because this is just a small part of eternity. After Christ's return, we'll look back on this life. After 10,000 years in the new heaven and the new earth, we'll look back on this life and think, what was I so worried about? Why was I so busy gathering things for myself? This is so much greater. The suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We endure affliction now because we wait a coming King. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the hope that is in Christ. We thank You that we can endure affliction to which we were destined because we have Your Holy Spirit, the power of Christ in us. It comforts us and it gives us peace in affliction and persecution. And God, I pray that as persecution comes, we would cling more closely to You and that we would cling more closely to one another, that we would love deeper and stronger and fuller as we endure together. And God, I pray that we would be as missionaries who have gone before us and count this life as nothing in order that we can have eternal life. But God, I pray that we would be a people of hope that we just don't endure suffering and persecution in some kind of hopeless manner, but God, that we would point people to our hope. And that is in our coming King, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. 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 Would you stand as we continue to worship this morning?